This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on market scale. It's not as traditional or pigeonholed as you might have seen. You're seeing a real diversification across genres and across platforms. Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this experience and this community and the team on a greater scale. You know, the team of the past 30 years. We aren't in the baseball business. We are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business. The game's about to start. Let's make some noise. All right, welcome to the third episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for today's episode. Coming up on the show today, we have an interview with Matt Gutnecht and Ben Potts, and they're going to be talking about how APM Music has helped creatives across the world of sports make epic pieces of content using music and sound effects. It's a really interesting conversation between one guy who's helping facilitate another guy doing his job well. So Matt works for APM Music, Ben Potts works for NASCAR. They're going to talk about how they use APM's music and APM's music software to help create really, really great pieces of content. And uh, Matt does this not just for NASCAR, but for other sports leagues as well. We're going to talk a little bit about that coming up on the show. It's a really interesting conversation you're going to want to be here for. We're also going to have a conversation with Brian Verne, the CEO of Wave, and he joined us to talk about how sports entertainment is shifting from traditional media to mobile and social platforms. And he's really charting forward the future of sports broadcasting. It's going to be a really exciting conversation as well that I think you're really going to enjoy. We're also going to talk a little bit about the future of sports gambling in the United States and what kind of impact that's going to have on businesses. That is also coming up on the show. So plenty of exciting things to look forward to on this episode of the Sports and Entertainment Podcast. But first, I have to start off with the biggest news in entertainment this week. That's right, we need to talk a little bit about Friends because this is the sports and entertainment market scale podcast. So uh, there's nothing more entertainment than Friends and Netflix. And we were going to cover this uh, later on in the show in the news minutes, but I couldn't resist stealing some of the thunder for this opening segment of what I learned this week. So if you hadn't heard by now, Netflix re-upped with Warner Brothers to keep the hit show Friends on the streaming platform for another year. The price tag was a uh, somewhat astonishing $80 million that Netflix paid to Warner Brothers to be able to keep Friends on the streaming platform for the year 2019. Now, there's some talk that AT&T, the company that now owns Warner Brothers, uh, would start its own streaming platform and move all of its content over to that platform rather than letting a, you know, a company like Netflix continue to distribute it. But for now, that hasn't come to pass. So AT&T and Warner Brothers can still charge a ridiculous amount of money to keep shows like Friends on streaming platforms like Netflix. But here's what I didn't know, and this is something that I did learn this week, is that Netflix is ridiculously stingy with the viewership data for their shows. So nobody actually knows how many people watch Friends, how often Friends gets watched on Netflix, or any of those other statistics that people might find interesting to talk about in a conversation about how much a streaming platform paid for a specific show. Which means everyone's basically left to guess whether or not this is actually a worthwhile investment for Netflix. Now, do you think that large amounts of people would go out and cancel their Netflix subscription should Friends no longer be on the platform? I don't know. I, it would be a pretty uh, dark day in my household, I'd have to say, as my wife would maybe uh, rage a little bit if that were the case. And maybe that may, 
And maybe that might be the same for you if uh, Netflix were to all of a sudden not have Friends anymore. I know I saw a lot of weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth when it was assumed that all of a sudden Friends would be gone at the beginning of 2019. Now that that's no longer the case, a lot of that panic has subsided. But it did cause me to wonder why Netflix is so stingy with that data. Maybe it is so that there's not public sentiment around specific decisions like this one, where people are trying to guess whether or not it's worth it for a platform like Netflix to spend the kind of money to keep certain shows on the platform. I don't know. Uh, But it's certainly an interesting question and one worth discussing. It also makes you wonder what might happen if eventually certain uh, production companies like a Warner Brothers and, you know, partnering with AT&T eventually do pull all of their content off of streaming services. What that would do for the long-term future of a company like Netflix, which right now seems so huge and invincible, but if eventually production companies began to pull all of their content off of these streaming services, is Hulu affected long-term? Is Netflix affected long-term? It's certainly something to watch for as we see how entertainment continues to evolve and how our consumption of entertainment continues to evolve, uh, as we get more and more of these streaming style services and more and more options for how to consume content, whether it's Amazon, YouTube, Netflix, Hulu, all of these different services. Certainly interesting to see what the future might hold for these services. Uh, Should production companies try to take some of their content back? So that's what I'm going to be watching for. And that is something I learned this week. Coming up next, as promised, is our conversation with Brian Fern, the CEO of Wave. And much in the same way that Netflix kind of came along and disrupted the TV industry in a lot of the ways that we traditionally consumed content, Brian foresees a day where a similar thing could happen with the sports entertainment industry. And I think you're really going to find this conversation interesting and informative about the future of sports entertainment. All of that is coming up next on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Why are we seeing a shift from traditional media over to social and mobile when it comes to sports? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, it's it's really somewhat of a, you know, I would say a manifestation of you know a number of of, of years of my life. Uh, you know, I think both both personally and um, you know professionally speaking, uh, I'm a former you know college athlete. Um, you know, played baseball through school, and then uh, you know was fortunate enough to get involved in sports, uh, you know, or sports business rather, um, thereafter, uh, you know, primarily, you know, at the entrepreneurial level and, um, you know, I've spent a number of years, you know, I would say, you know, doing different things or, uh, you know, building different products all, you know, at the intersection of what I would say, you know, young athletes, fans, uh, you know, and, uh, you know, emerging media and, um, you know, to, to your point, uh, you know, over, uh, I think, uh, in particular, a series of the last called five years, um, you know, I think you've seen, uh, you know, this seismic shift or the, you know, this, this transition of sorts as to how people are watching sports. Um, you know, I'm 31 years old, uh, you know, grew up watching, you know, ESPN and Sports Center and Baseball Tonight and, uh, you know, programming like that, you know, pretty much religiously every single day. Um, but, you know, that's just not how, uh, you know, this next generation of fans, um, or consumers, uh, you know, watches sports today. Um, you know, they want short form, 
uh, you know, video, easily digestible, snackable content uh, on their platforms of choice, um, you know, which just so happens to be, uh, you know, the social platforms where, uh, you know, the vast majority of long, young people uh, live today. And, uh, and so I think, you know, taking that all into account, and, you know, we'll certainly dig you know, deeper here as we go on, um, you know, seeing those trends and, uh, you know, being super ear to the ground, that was, you know, what ultimately led to, you know, the manifestation of Wave and, you know, what, you know, we've built and what we're doing today. So I'm glad you brought up Wave. Can you tell us a little bit about then, just to kind of contextualize this issue, um, or not issue, I guess, movement, how, how is Wave, you know, reacting or, or what is it doing for this shift we're seeing right now? Yeah, so I think it's, you know, it's really, you know, kind of twofold or, or um, you know, our, our, our focus rather is, uh, you know, twofold. Um, you know, our thesis was, you know, rooted in this notion that, you know, if you were going to build a, you know, sports media brand today, you know, a relevant publisher, uh, you need to build communities on top of the platforms where people already are. Um, you know, today's consumer, uh, you know, as I mentioned, they want optionality. Uh, they want frictionless consumption. And I think even more importantly, uh, you know, the ability to have two-way conversations with their peers. Um, on their platform of choice. And today that's, that's Instagram, that's Snapchat, that's YouTube, uh, and, and so on. And so, you know, step one for us was to develop these communities and build audience on, you know, those particular platforms. I think, uh, you know, with a heavy emphasis on, you know, on Instagram. And so, um, you know, after raising some venture funding, uh, you know, we, uh, stayed in stealth mode, so to speak, but over the last, you know, year or so, you know, prior to officially launching, you know, as Wave, um, you know, just several weeks ago, we have you know, built about a hundred or so uh, communities, uh, primarily on Instagram, but you know, moving towards an omni-channel approach on you know, on Snap and uh, on YouTube in particular. Um, we have about twenty-four million you know followers across these channels. Uh, we generate over seven hundred twenty-five million views every single month, and um, over fifty million engagements, and uh, you know, when we launched, we, uh, you know, are the fourth largest sports publisher, uh, you know, on, on social. Um, and, you know, nobody had probably heard of us, uh, you know, just because we had done this, you know, somewhat under the radar for, you know, the last you know, 12 months. Right, right. So then, Brian, how do you think these mobile platforms have to adapt to what their customers want? What do you think they're seeing that is creating this shift? I think it's all centered around this notion of community generated content. And so, you know, these younger fans, uh, you know, like they're not even me, I mean, and, you know, they're, they're not, you know, our dads, uh, they don't want to sit in front of a TV and, you know, watch a talking head or, uh, you know, watch, uh, you know, a three hour game. Um, they want bite-sized content. That's personalized. That's, you know, like I said, easily digestible. Um, and they want it on their platform of choice. But I think even most importantly, they want it to be created by their peers. Uh, and so, um, you know, in addition to developing these communities where people are, uh, we actually also uh, have this decentralized content strategy or, or newsroom strategy um, in which we, you know, today already have hundreds of creators all over the world that are, you know, a member of this, you know, I would say emerging talent class or, you know, creative community uh, that work with us to, you know, produce the hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of content 
that we distribute every single day. And the um, you know genuine nature of of that content, the authenticity, uh, I think, is what um, you know our community, uh, you know, of twenty four million people uh, have. You know, they've told us like that's what they want um, uh, because you know it's just it's just it's just natural you know to their their viewing experience. So. And, I, and I'm glad you brought up the idea of like a, a decentralized newsroom because I think generally speaking, it's a it's a really interesting concept. But what do you do to because, you know, once you put the newsroom in the hand of the masses, it's generally harder to verify things and, and you generally tend to lose a lot of control. Is this something you've thought of? How do you how do you, I guess, counter the, the possibility of, of it being misused? Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's 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 a good question. Uh, you know, it's certainly something that, you know, we think about. Um, you know, all the time. That being said, though, I think the you know one of the underlying themes or you know, you know elements called foundational pillars, you know, of what we believe in is that um, you know if you have a voice, so to speak, you know, you are a creator, and uh, you know the the art of storytelling, whether it's you know sports or music or the arts, uh, you know, you know any particular uh you know category or realm um it's essentially your worldview or you telling a narrative through your lens uh and i think today uh you know and you know by the nature of, of you know these social platforms and the power uh you know of, of your thumb and and you know of that mobile device uh you know it's given this marginalized class or you know this emerging creative community as as uh as, as we put it um the power to be relevant and uh, not only be relevant to be a you know a leader in the space, and you know, th- that didn't always I- I exist. And that you know, and don't mean to belabor the point, but it's this phenomenon that you know that that we drive home every single day. Uh, you know, if you talk about the sports world, you know, even ten years ago, but but particularly in the '90s when you know you had you know the likes of uh, you know Stuart Scott and Scott Penfield and Linda Cohen and Chris Berman, uh, you know, all these folks who were transformative in terms of um, how we, you know, how we watch sports or how sports were covered. Um, you had to be in that like 0.1 percentile, uh, to actually matter and to be able to tell your story. Um, and that, that is not true today. And I think the consumer has even gone, uh, one step further and saying, that's not even what we want. We actually want to hear from our peers. We want to engage with our peers. We want to react to the stories that our peers tell. Um, and we want to do it on the platforms, uh, where we already are. Right, right. So, do you think this kind of approach could work for other other, you know, parts in entertainment or or even news? Do you think the idea of a decentralized newsroom has a a different application outside of sports or entertainment? Yeah, I, I uh absolutely. Um, you know, I, you know, I mean, this is certainly, you know, a, a major part of our uh, you know, thesis, so to speak, just as uh, you know, a kind of, you know, think of it as, uh, you know, this like old world, you know, versus new world, you know, paradigm. Um, but I, I, I certainly do think that you'll continue to see these trends because it's this, you know, creative community that is very clearly speaking out and saying that they want to be the drivers, uh, you know, of, um, you know, the, the, both the content creation, uh, and then, you know, as a result, you know, the consumption experience. Right. So what are, what do you think are some of the or I guess what have been some of the biggest challenges in bringing wave to market? 
Ah, uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges is, is I think, you know, we we operate like I said, a hundred and you know about one hundred and twenty communities in uh, you know, totality. Um, you know, I don't think anyone has really, yeah, you know, tried this approach. Uh, you know, so that's you know certainly a challenge. Uh, you know, every single day, and and um, you know, I, I think another component or aspect of you know our business is you know, how do we, uh, you know, constantly, um, you know, transform our content and, and, you know, think about, uh, you know, these emerging, um, uh, or new, you know, media units, you know, posts and stories, for instance, uh, you know, how can we create, um, you know, repeatable kind of episodic, you know, programming, uh, you know, formatted for, uh, you know, these particular channels and, um, you know, do it in a, in, in, in a lean manner. Uh, so, yeah, you know, it's 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 both a challenge, but I I think you know even more importantly, it's you know it's it's an opportunity because there's just so much white space. Um, you know, in, in sports in particular, uh, you I mean I don't think we've seen an industry change so quickly, so uh, you know, um, or change this much so quickly rather. And you know what that does is you know, it creates opportunities to I think generate you know billions of dollars of enterprise value at the end of the day. Um, and you know, the you know, history is always very cyclical. You know, only time will tell, but uh, there will, you know, absolutely be, you know, winners that emerge, um, you know, in this, uh, you know, call it uh, sports media 2.0 complex. Right. So, Brian, my last question for you is, as a, as a leader in this this industry, what do you see on the horizon? What What's got you excited about the future where this could potentially go? Oh man, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, this is probably going to be somewhat, you know, re- re- repetitive. Uh, but I, you know, again, I think it's just all rooted in, like I said, this old world versus, you know, new world paradigm shift. Uh, and it's, you know, three, three levels or three facets. Um, you know, old world was your brand lived and was created on television and web linear you know, new world, it's uh, on the consumer's platform of choice. And really your brand needs to live everywhere. Um, you know, old world was you had a traditional kind of centralized new room, newsroom, new world is you have this decentralized newsroom uh, that's driven by this emerging uh, talent class or, you know, creative class. Uh, and then finally, you know, old world is as a media company, you would, uh, you know, generally beholden to a traditional advertising revenue model. Whereas, you know, in a new world, uh, I think it's going to be very much, uh, you know, di- diversified, um, and you know, the winners that emerge will will, will certainly you know, take advantage of that. So, you know, just taking that all into account, uh, like I said, it's 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 uh, you know, it's a challenge, but um, you know, there is, uh, I think, even more so, you know, this huge opportunity and this like blank canvas to an extent uh, that um, you know we have, you know, the ability to you know, in which to, 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 make our mark. Uh, you know, if there was one area where, you know, I would, um, you know, you know, make a, uh, make a claim, which I, I think it's going to be the emergence of community generated content. Uh, I think that is what is going to be the driving force for the leaders, um, in both sports media and just, uh, you know, media in, in general. Uh, I think the consumer has spoken very clearly that that's what they want. Um, and they want to be both a part of the creation and the consumption, uh, and folks that are able to be adaptable and nimble enough, 
um, to create those types of experiences, you know, in an omni-channel approach are the ones that are ultimately going to win. Thanks again to Brian Vern for joining us on this week's episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Coming up next are your Market Scale Sports and Entertainment News Minutes brought to you by Landon Jones. Landon, take it away. These are your Sports and Entertainment News Minutes brought to you by Market Scale. On Twitter this week, fans of the 90s sitcom Friends expressed outrage that the show might be removed from the streaming behemoth Netflix. But Netflix quickly fired back the show will remain on the site through 2019. Vulture reports Netflix is paying Warner Brothers close to $80 million to keep the show. This according to an unnamed entertainment industry insider who was familiar with the deal. But Vulture goes on to say that although $80 million sounds like an absurd price, it's really not as ridiculous as it seems. Friends ran for 10 seasons and has 236 episodes. That's a lot of content. And when Friends was on network television, it aired as a top five show in all 10 of those seasons. Netflix famously refuses to release viewing statistics, but the show seems to have become a sort of cult classic for a new generation experiencing the show for the first time on the streaming service. Some suggest this new popularity like the show's original popularity in the 90s, is a big reason Netflix is willing to dish out the big bucks to keep it around. Does XFL ring any bells? If it doesn't, it should. It was an American football league owned by WWE and NBC that lasted only one season back in 2001. But in 2020, the XFL will make what many believe will be a fierce and competitive comeback. This week, the league announced the eight cities that will host XFL teams as well as their stadiums. On the East Coast, we have teams in Audi and MetLife stadiums in Washington, D.C. and New York City. Over on the West Coast, teams will find homes in LA's StubHub Center and Seattle's CenturyLink Field. The Dome at America Center in St. Louis will get a team and so will Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay. And Texas will get two teams, one in Houston's TDECU Stadium and one right here at Globe Life Park in Dallas. And more good news for Seattle. The city was also chosen to host an NHL team. The league's Board of Governors unanimously agreed to make Seattle home to what will be the National Hockey League's 32nd franchise. They also announced the NHL will have to do some restructuring to make room for its new team. The Seattle team will join the league's Pacific Division, while the Arizona Coyotes will move on over to the Central Division. None of these changes will take effect until 2021 though, when the as of yet unnamed Seattle team will play its first season, which is slightly later than most people expected. What's the big holdup? According to an NHL blog post, the team's stadium, Key Arena, will be getting an $800 million renovation. I'm Landon Jones, and these have been your Market Scale Sports and Entertainment News Minutes.
Thank you for those news minutes there, Landon. Coming up next on the show, we're going to talk about one of the most interesting issues surrounding the world of sports right now, and that is the issue of sports gambling. Now, recently, the Supreme Court legalized sports gambling to a certain extent, I suppose. They basically tossed it to the states and said states can individually regulate how they wanted to handle sports gambling. So certain states in the Northeast, like New Jersey, for instance, already had ideas in place for how they wanted to implement this and pretty much instantaneously made it legal for their citizens to bet on sports. Other states like Texas, for instance, where I live, uh, lags behind in that regard as they have kind of uh, slow played this idea, uh, maybe being a little bit more reluctant to adopt uh, such a thing here in the state of Texas. So that's just an example of how two states have decided to handle it. Well, Dustin Gauker is the head of content for Katina Media, and one of the things that he does is he covers this world of gambling and sports. Uh, And he's going to join us next on the podcast to talk a little bit about how this decision by the Supreme Court and the subsequent decisions taken by states have impacted big businesses all around the country. So you've even had companies like a Buffalo Wild Wings toss out the potential idea of being able to place bets from your booth right there at Buffalo Wild Wings. So how could that affect the restaurant business? How could that affect uh, the business of actually attending games? Could he foresee a day where we could eventually be able to place bets right there you know, at the stadium, at the arena, go to an NBA game, place a bet on that particular game? I don't know, but that's certainly something that I'm going to ask him about coming up next on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, now on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast, I'm going to have a conversation with Dustin Gauker. He's the managing editor of Legal Sports Report, and he's been published on a number of other uh, publications as well, just talking about the world of online gaming and sports betting. You can find him in the Washington Post, Forbes, all of that sort of thing. If you just Google his name, you will find uh, quite a bit of content out there. Dustin, thank you so much for joining me on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Absolutely. Happy to be on. So, uh... Basically, back in May, uh, the Supreme Court essentially said that states could regulate sports betting as they see fit. Is that about right as far as a summation of what the Supreme Court said? Uh, yeah, basically, there is a law on the books that uh, pretty much bans sports betting outside of Nevada, at least on single game wagering and a, a couple other limited forms in other states. But after that uh, that uh, ruling back in the spring, uh, basically, states could go move forward and say, hey, if we want to have sports betting, we can do that. That's, uh, that's the way it's worked for other forms of gambling across the country for a while now. And yeah, now sports betting has started to open up in, in a lot of states this year. So what states immediately jumped on uh, this new uh, this new ability to legislate it th- themselves? I-, I know New Jersey was pretty quick to adopt it. What other states kind of immediately hopped on that train? Uh, the other ones that were really quick were uh, Mississippi, which already had a law in the books. They've had they have uh, you know I think a last count more than two dozen open uh, sports books in the in the state at, at casinos around the state. We recently saw um, Pennsylvania and Rhode Island open uh, their first sports books uh, just. Uh, in the in the recent weeks, um, so uh, those are the big ones. Um, yeah, and we uh, you know, the, right now I think the count is eight states where you can now legally place a, a single game wager, and that number is certainly going to grow uh, beyond this year. Yeah, are there any states that have kind of started that process but haven't all, walked all the way through it yet? You know, uh, like uh, I, I don't know, I'm thinking of New York or something along those lines. Other states that have have begun the process but not quite gotten all the way through it. Yeah, absolutely. There's uh, there's a lot of those states actually. Um, you know, there's a, um, I'm not sure if we have an exact number, but I, you know, I think we're going to see legislation uh, you know in more than 20 states next year. Whether any of those states actually get to the finish line remains to be seen. But New York. Illinois, Michigan, uh, and a handful of other states are 
um, really on the on the front burner. We expect them to, you know, either pass a law or, or, or seriously consider passing one. Now, I live in the state of Texas, and I'm, I'm pretty confident we haven't done anything in this regard. Am I right about that? Yeah, there's actually been sports betting bills uh, introduced there. But as you know, gambling, not a really widespread thing in Texas. So, yeah, um, yeah, I don't, yeah and, and your legislatures only meet every two years there. So, it's, uh, it's it seems like a tough lift to get sports betting. I, I wouldn't call it impossible, but, you know, maybe someday. I'm not, I don't think. Uh, I don't think next year's in the cards for you, though. Well, I guess I'll just have to be patient about that or move, but we'll we'll, we'll just have to see which one comes first. But uh, I am curious about what changes you foresee this bringing around to the industry, especially as it relates to sports. Like, uh, could you could you envision a day where you see uh, windows at arenas or stadiums where people could go and place bets on a game that's happening right there? Absolutely. There's owners who are really into this. Uh, you know, the the place we're actually seeing this manifest already is in uh, District of Columbia, where they have their their city council is. is actually running a bill to have uh, sports betting through their lottery and that bill actually has a mechanism for there to be wagering in uh, the stadiums there. There's uh, NBA, NHL teams that play an arena there. There's Washington Nationals to play in a park there. There's actually a mechanism where you could you could have uh, you know the lottery or or another provider have sports betting within those within those stadiums and uh, Ted Leonsis who owns the the Wizards and uh, the Capitals there uh, has been a big proponent of this so yeah I think we're we're going to see that I, I I'm not sure I thought it was going to have that was going to happen as fast as we've seen it but the the interest is definitely there. Mark Cuban uh, here in Dallas has been a big proponent of this and said that he thinks that it would uh, help increase the value of sports franchises. Do you see it that way? Do you think that that could be a, a knock on effect of this? Oh, absolutely. I think, uh, you know, sports betting uh, at core, I mean, this is good for a lot of people. It's good for, it's good for states that regulate it, get tax revenue. It's good for, you know, casino and sports betting operators to make money. But, you know, sports betting, we already know, provides a lot of engagement for viewers. Uh, it's uh, another reason to watch games or to watch games longer. And sports leagues have long known this. There's there's no shortage of, of, of betting that goes on illegally and, and via offshore sports books. And bringing that into the light and having it become more widespread, you can actually advertise it uh, you know a little bit in the United States now you, uh, you're seeing a lot of advertisements in New Jersey and the New York and Philadelphia areas now that sports betting is legal there so yeah I think you know I think Mark uh, said something like I don't know he said some really pie in the sky number like I, I want to say he said it doubled franchise values like today I think that's a little much but you know there there's uh, there's a, there's, a, there's a story to be told there of like this is this is gonna help teams this is gonna help leagues there's no doubt about that and uh, even people like uh, I believe I've read that a, a rep from Buffalo Wild Wings throughout the possibility that you could be sitting at a booth maybe at a buffalo wild wings and place a bet there at the restaurant could you see it impacting the restaurant industry and that kind of being integrated as well well buffalo wild wings they're a little out there i mean this is still going to happen often like as a casino gaming product mm-hmm. uh, or as lotteries i mean you're going to be able to bet on your phone or mobily in a lot of states that are that are legal this is not becoming a, a licensed sports book operator where you can go and have a, there's going to be windows there. I don't I don't see that happening mostly because states are kind of will naturally kind of limit where retail sports books can be. Doesn't mean you couldn't be in a Buffalo Wild Wings and sign up for an account and here I'm on my phone I can you know I can bet I can bet from Buffalo Wild Wings. But I, yeah, I don't see restaurants. I mean even you know the sports bar model makes sense, but uh, they're not going to be. I don't think they're going to be the the front line of, of sports betting in the United States. So the Supreme Court decision really started the ball rolling. Is there any possibility that other legislation could get introduced that slows this whole thing down? Yeah, we've seen in Congress, uh, there's a draft bill circulating that I just read about this week uh, from Senator Orrin Hatch, who's retiring, uh, kind of trying to 
put some kind of federal standards on sports betting. Uh, I don't I don't see the will for Congress to get involved necessarily. Uh, gambling has been a, a, something that's been left to the states traditionally, for better or for worse. And I don't see the federal government um, getting involved in this one little sector uh, of how gambling go down, goes down in states. And like we said, we're already down the rabbit hole of eight states of some form of wagering. That number is going to probably, you know, could double by, by this time next year if we were talking about it then. So I, I don't see anything slowing it down. I mean, a congressional bill and the one, especially the one we saw the other day, which has a mechanism to kind of have states have to be approved by the federal government, that would slow it down. But I don't, I don't think we're going to see a, a federal bill anytime soon or, or any kind of thing, anything slowing the momentum of sports in the United States. That is Dustin Gauker, the managing editor of Legal Sports Report. Dustin, we'll have to have you on again in the future just to keep us updated on this situation. Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks for having me on. Thanks again to Dustin for joining the podcast today and for giving us that inside look at the world of sports gambling and maybe a little bit of a preview as far as what is coming down the line for the future of that industry. Certainly be interested to keep an eye on that. Coming up next is going to be our final piece of content for the week, and it's an interview with Matt Gutnick and Ben Potts. Now, they work for different companies and have different jobs, but what they do is they collaborate and use each other's skills to make amazing pieces of content. Matt is the Senior Director of Sports Entertainment at APM Music. He helps provide music and sound effects for people like Ben, who's the Senior Audio Mixer at NASCAR Productions, so that Ben can make these amazing promo videos and recap videos of events that happen in his particular sport. So, Matt provides the support, helps navigate the vast library that APM has at their disposal. Ben takes that music and those sound effects and puts them into videos and really creates some amazing stuff. So it's an interesting interview about how each person's strength goes to complement one another and helps to create amazing content. So I hope you enjoy this interview coming up next with Matt Gutnick and Ben Potts. So I'm curious uh, to start off just to hear a little bit about each of your roles. So, uh, Ben, we'll start with you. You are the senior audio mixer for NASCAR. So what does that mean and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? So senior audio mixer uh, just means that I am responsible, we're responsible for all the sound elements in a video, uh, such as the dialogue, uh, editing that if it, if it needs it, cleaning any dialogue, EQing, revoluming any dialogue, denoising dialogue, adding sound sound effects, adding atmospheric sounds, adding any uh, foley that, that the video might need, the creation of sounds that are non-existent. Um, for a lot of our pieces here at NASCAR, we, we get sound from the cars or from the track or from the race, whether it be through our ENG cameras or our broadcast content. Um, but for those sounds that maybe they came in over modulated, maybe they didn't come in at all, maybe the camera didn't pick them up at all, um, we're, we're adding uh, NASCAR sounds back in and barely embellishing them. Um, that's what we do. So, Matt, in your role, how often and how much do you come alongside uh, people in Ben's role and, and just kind of show them, hey, this is how you can best use our services and our products. Uh, this is how uh, this is kind of the best practice, I suppose, for utilizing APM to its to its fullest potential. That's a great question. And back to Ben's comments, I could sit there and <laughs> listen to that all day long. It's so insightful, and you know, uh, as you said before, I'm not the guy i'm the guy behind the guy so i can 
uh, get people up to speed and roll them out and show them how to use the website and where to find everything or how to use our music directors to help save them time and find music or what's available on our sound design page or, you know, provide support, access and awareness. But I'm not in the suite. I'm not at the session. I don't have the creative vision. Um, that's where I feel that we're absolutely blessed to have so many amazing clients like Ben that can showcase what's essentially possible with using our comprehensive service. And if I can, if I can interrupt, Tyler, we um, I'll give you a case in point. Um, last this past May, you know, when the movie Solo came out, uh, there was this awesome trailer for it, and there was a music piece in there that that just spoke to the younger Han Solo character. And I was like, that piece of music is great. Um, I love it. I bet we could use that or something like that within a NASCAR project. And I got on the phone with Matt and I said, like, look, here's, here's this piece. Like, can you find something for us that's similar to that? And that's when the music directors from APM got involved. Matt, you could probably say it better than I can, but got involved and gave us plenty of options. And we ended up using uh, one of their suggestions. So um, that, that's always good to have that relationship. And that's not just a me thing. Like any of our producers can contact Matt um, and, and, and have that uh, source. Ben, so as I watched the radioactive video, I, I found myself just, uh, it, it stirred a lot of emotion and it was a really cool video to watch because there were so many different elements that were brought into it. It wasn't just race footage. You had some cutscenes and some other things that I thought were really, really awesome to, uh, to see in that, in that video. So I'm curious just about uh, some of your influences when it comes to sound and what it comes to what you do. Uh, who has influenced you and, uh, and how did you uh, kind of create the style that is your particular style today? Um, man, that's a big question. Um, I, think, I think as a sound uh, person, you're always listening. Um, I'll try not to be too broad, but you're always listening, whether you're outside listening to traffic or you're in your house and you're listening to something finite. Um, and you're also watching and listening to a lot of TV and film uh, and, and YouTube and Vimeo. Um, I'm a student of sound. I love studying sound. I love... Um, trying to figure out sound like how why did they use this how did they use this did they manipulate it um and how much did they use of it maybe that's a volume thing maybe it's a content thing but i mean obviously the the folks out at skywalker sound i'm a huge uh fan of theirs like ben bird dennis leonard um guys like that randy tom you know uh outstanding sound designer mixer who did who did apocalypse now and all the indiana jones films um mark mangini who did blade runner 2049 and mad max fury road which is two i mean if there's two of your top five sound films of all time those two uh, are nails um, just incredible incredible work and it's not it's not only with those two movies and others it's not a just it's not just about creating cool sound design or um, it's adding to the story it's always purposeful with its um, uh, with using it 
Um, one of my biggest influences is a guy named Craig Hennigan. Uh, he's done uh, such movies as Moonrise Kingdom, Black Swan, uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Uh, he's also the sound designer for the series Stranger Things on Netflix. Um, oh, I love that. Yeah. That's, I mean, what a what a great series that's all about like sound and music and, and design. Um, and then he did Requiem for a Dream. And um, this year with Radioactive, we tried to incorporate this this dream aspect of uh, the four drivers, the four finalists, having this dream of winning, having this dream of uh, it all coming together, having having a nightmare that that something goes wrong. Um, so we incorporated that into the piece um, barely more than halfway, kind of this final like things will come crushing down moment. And um, John Householder, one of our great producers here, uh, cut this this nightmare section that was pretty much all graphic base, and there were some words being thrown, and just some some weirdness, really strange, almost nightmare dream like things. So we knew we wanted to do this. Like I was talking about preparing before, we prepared a little bit of sound uh, sound design before, more or less, so John could start cutting this. I'm talking this was this was not like months in advance. This was like a week in advance, and we actually um, this is sort of the Easter egg of the of the show. We actually cut four different nightmare sections, and um, because we were thinking at the time, hey, we'll do four different nightmare sections for each driver, right? So we ended up because of time. Um, we ended up using one that was sort of mashed together. So using a lot of sound design elements from APM, we created these four, and then John created basically one. So when it came back to me on the final day of mixing, the only day of mixing, I should say, uh, it, it had to be redone a little bit. Um, so... In, in Requiem for the Dream, Requiem for a Dream, there's a lot of uh, quick edits, uh, close-up shots of things, and we knew we wanted to incorporate that kind of kind of idea. You know, not not just hey, let's be like Craig Hennigan, let's be like Requiem for a Dream, right? Uh, absolutely not, but uh, fulfill this this nightmare idea with harsh sounds, edgy sounds, sounds you wouldn't. Uh, normally here in a racing piece um, so there was a lot of uh, a lot of direction from that there's a lot of direction from from a lot of people um, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm I'm fond of a guy named Will Files who's one of the head sound guys out at Sony and he's really big on um, sound design and sound elements being either tonal or rhythmic and um, you know, with regards to APM's music, we'll pick a we'll pick a piece of music that hopefully is is what the story needs at that moment, right? But then there's these sound design elements that we want to incorporate, but we want we want the mix to share those elements. We don't want the music to take up too much of the sound, but we don't want the sound to take too much of the music. So I know for me, being a musician, I I am maybe I'm not in potentially aware but i'm constantly aware of how a sound sound effect 
fits inside the music or fits inside the mix so it's not contrasting. Uh, obviously, there are times in a piece where you do want some contrast, but that should be story-driven. Um, so those, those are a couple of, uh, couple of my influences. I'm curious about uh, maybe some technolo technological advances that have helped push some things forward that maybe has uh, assisted you guys in what you're doing, whether it's, you know, cloud-based technology that allows you to, you know, have larger libraries and to share things more easily between people. Uh, have, have there been any technological advances like that that have really helped you guys, uh, both of you, in, in, in what you're trying to do? Ben, you want to shoot first? Yeah, I mean... <sighs> I don't know if if um, if it's technology so much, but I mean one thing that we uh, enjoy with APM is the fact that we, we'll get a we'll get a request from a client to do a video, right, or a series of videos, and uh, oftentimes they will say, "Hey, can you suggest music?" Um, these are folks that are often not in the production process and maybe don't completely understand the production process. Well, we'll head to, we'll head to APM um, and we will take into account what that, what that concept is or that creative idea is, start finding songs, putting them into a folder, and then the sharing of that folder with clients uh, is great because then they can not only hear it, but they can start saying i don't like that i like that let's keep that that might work hey i really like that but let's not use that is there another one that's similar um so that's that's a great function we use with uh honestly clients and producers around the building yeah that's that's pretty awesome you, you're, you're describing technology that you guys have have been uh implementing recently is there anything in 2019 as you look forward down the road that you're excited about about your particular uh industry um i'd, I'd love to do essentially like the christmas or super bowl big teaser trailer i don't want to give too much away but mm. um taking a look at a roadmap for next year there's a lot of great stuff in development again i know it's totally cliche but um the last thing i would ever want to do is over promise and under deliver but you know we're continuing to look to innovate continuing to look to help save people time and stay tuned that's really exciting and ben uh, obviously we're kind of in a uh, the, the the off season in nascar is barely even an off season i guess you could say but how do you use the time between you know the final race and the first race of next season uh, and how do you use that time and how do you use the tools provided by APM to kind of, uh, I guess, prepare for what is a busy season that comes just right on the heels of the previous one ending? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And yeah, barely an off season for us. <laughs> um, I mean, I think I think, you know, like Matt's saying with the time, you know, time definitely affects us, too, with not being able to search as much as we want. And I think in this downtime, our producers and myself are are listening in on the APM songs. We're taking our time. There are uh, projects that we know that are coming in 2019, um, and we're we're building music folders for those. We're we're already starting the process. Uh, we talk about Radioactive Homestead. Uh, another big radioactive for us is the Daytona 500, our first race of the year. Um, we'll go 
pretty hard with that one too. So we're already listening in on um, what that sounds like. You know, the race has not even happened and we're already trying to decide what happened through the music. Uh, so a lot of producers and myself, we're, we're listening in. Um, like Matt said, we're listening into the, the most recent releases and also trying to dig deeper into APM on something that maybe we overlooked or maybe, you know, it's just, wow, there, here's a gem of a piece. I'm going to snug that away and, uh, you know, maybe maybe it's uh for a project that i don't know about yet but that's how we uh that's how we're operating with apm in the off season i mean with sound design um we're just really getting our feet wet with that one i mean we're using it a lot but actually um you know building uh like sound design templates where we're pulling in apm sounds and uh really listening in to what they are and and um you know just getting those ready for the next season Well, once again, we've reached the end of another episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thank you to my guests today, Matt Gutnick, Ben Potts, Dustin Gauker, and Brian Vern. Thank you to you good listeners for tuning in for this episode. And if you enjoyed it, we have more content just like this over at marketscale.com. And feel free to share this with your friends, family, colleagues, other people in the industry that you think might be interested in this particular content. We would certainly enjoy it if you shared this with them as well. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a nice review and a nice rating on whatever podcast platform you're listening to this episode on. That would certainly be appreciated as well. Until next week, I've been your host, Tyler Kern. We'll talk again soon. 